Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hey, you guys, happy Sunday and welcome to another episode of the Limitless Grid Podcast. Super, super excited about today's episode because I have none other than Jeff Jonas. So I've been trying to get Jeff on this podcast for more than five months because I've been fascinated with his life and his story. So he is a data scientist, former IBM fellow, serial entrepreneur, and one of four people in the world to do every single Ironman triathlon. So I didn't know what Ironman triathlon was until I researched Jeff. So it consists of 2.4 mile of swim, 112 mile of bike ride, and 26.22 mile of run in one race. So he is one of four people in the world to have completed every single one of the challenges. And I wanted to really understand what made him do that. I also wanted to understand his mindset and how he tackled biggest challenges. And one thing I learned after researching him and having a conversation with him is the importance of breaking down big problems into small pieces and tackling them one piece at a time. Guys, I can talk about him for hours, but I want you to learn from him and understand how you can tackle biggest problems in your life as well and move on even after going through a really, really difficult time because he went through some of the hardest time, yet he was able to overcome and make something great out of it. Uh, I also want to give you a heads up that there might be some background noise and I want to apologize for that, but I promise you this content is so powerful and has changed the way I think and tackle problems. And I know that it will add value in your life as well. So without further ado, everyone, Jeff Jonas. Jeff, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you. Hi. Hello. (laughs) So um, like I was telling you, I was researching you and I was fascinated because you're a data scientist, IBM fellow, serial entrepreneur, and one of the four people in the world to complete every single Ironman um, triathlon. So, but if you had to describe yourself in few words, what would you describe yourself as? I'm a curious person, and I have a lot of energy. <laughs> That's how I would describe myself. So I'm very curious. I'm lucky I haven't hurt myself more. <laughs> Electricity those wires have. I'll touch them. <laughs> I mean, you love computer. You love programming. How old were you when you first um, like saw a computer or when you knew that you wanted to be a programmer? I went to go see a word processor with my mother. She's a lawyer uh, when I was maybe 12 or 13. And in the demo, they went like online and searched for something. It was like pre-internet called ARPANET. I just remember looking at that. I just went, I didn't really know, it was the first time I even heard the word computer or saw a computer. But when they went out and like searched for stuff and brought answers back from around the world, I just went, oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I do that. I became dedicated to it right then and there. That's, I went, that's what I'm going to do with my whole life for wow. work. How old were you when you first created your first software? I think I was like 15 or 16. I wrote, I was on a summer um, high school project like for extra credit, and I wrote a word processor before there were really very many for a computer called a Pet Commodore, and I turned it in, and then my teacher a little while later said, do you mind if I see if there's a, you know, if anybody wants to buy this? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> Went to the Los Angeles School District, and I got a check. It wasn't a lot of money, but I remember thinking to myself, okay, wait a minute. I just did something I loved, and then people sent me money. <laughs> 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 Turn out okay. Wow. Um, then you went to college and you dropped out of college. Uh, did you go back after? Only to teach. <laughs> wow. So you yeah. were like a self-taught um, genius. I, I would never use that word. I don't think I'm a ge- remotely a genius. Every now and then people will use those words. I, I think they're just making that up. It doesn't seem very true to me. But I am certainly, I love software and 
I've figured it out on the, you know, on the streets in hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. And for me, I think um, I really believe that skill is more important than talent. But in in your life, do you think it's like like naturally good at computers, or do you think it's mostly skill? I think I had to learn it. I had to learn principles. I don't. I don't think it came to me. I knew I loved it, but I don't think I was started out great at it, and I had to just over just trial and error, you know, failures and trial and error. I got sufficiently skilled to sell my time for it and make a few bucks. When, how old were you when you had like your first breakthrough or your first um, software that made you like tangible amount of money or gave you tangible like recognition? Well, I was sleeping in my car after the bankruptcy and I, I had to go find some first customers, but it's hard to go find a first customer because they're like, they like, uh, okay, tell me about you. And I'm like, well, I had a little software company, but I fa- every project failed, and I, I live in my car now, but I can help you. And they're like, well, how many successes have you had? Oh, um, zero. <laughs> so I, I would say my first successful thing was that first thing. <clears throat> and what I did, by the way, because I get asked this from time to time, is like, well, how would it work out where you're sleeping in your car, and then you go and show up and sell your time? And uh, what I did is I, I did a better job estimating the amount of effort and then I told them how much it was going to cost. I said they didn't have to pay me till I was done. And if I said I was late, they could reduce the rate by $100 a day. They thought to them, there's no regrets, you know, like how they were going to just get the money when I was all done. Um, I don't think our audience heard that story. But if you want to explain uh, your first bankruptcy and your journey towards Vegas from that. <laughs> My first bankruptcy. I would like to point out it would be my only bankruptcy. (laughs) You kill me. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) Dropped out of high school. Went to college for one semester. Dropped out of my second semester because I I found somebody that said they wanted. I found somebody that was selling hardware, but to sell hardware, they needed to have software. So they wanted a computer programmer to write software so they could sell hardware. So. I started writing software for them, and then there was a bit of work to do, so I hired some people to help write software, and I was, I didn't really know how to quote prices for things, so I, you know, like somebody asked me how much for and a full accounting software. This is like before things called QuickBooks, so, you know, it's like, well, how much for a general ledger, accounts payable, accounts receivable, and sales order entry, like all those accounting modules. I'm like, $600? Spent years for that. Six hundred dollars. But anyway, so long story short is I am I'm I was nineteen or twenty and uh I had twenty one people working for me, but I wasn't collecting enough money for all the work to be done, so payroll checks bounced, nothing finished. I ended up I was two hundred thousand in debt, I kinda of worked it down to a hundred thousand, it was Christmas, I was depressed. So I filed bankruptcy uh on December thirty first, nineteen eighty three. I think yeah, I've been in nineteen years old. <clears throat> and then um I decided I really still wanted to be a computer programmer, so I started my next uh, company from while living in my, my, my car. I mean, I'm just so fascinated. I'm, I'm just 24, and I feel extremely lost. I have a full-time job, and I do podcasting on weekends, but there are also times like, I you know, doubt myself. I'm like, oh, I'm not doing enough. But you were just 20 years old, declared bankruptcy, living in your car, I believe you're about to be a father. How did you get over it? You know, when I went to tell my dad, I'm like, Dad, you're going to be a grandpa. He goes, <laughs> oh. I go, yeah. He goes, no, you don't even have a girlfriend. And I said, well, well, that's true. <laughs> you're still going to be a grandpa. Oh, man. Oh, my God. <laughs> Actually, it was one of the kindest things he ever did was kick me out because I really wasn't, I wasn't really a great kid. I wasn't that respons- I wasn't responsible really at all. And, uh, but anyway, to your point, you know, uh, you said you feel lost at times and uh, like you don't do enough and you doubt yourself. I doubt myself all the time. My scenario played in my head. I challenge myself on stuff. I often feel like I could be doing more, being more efficient. I think that's probably healthy unless you're completely spinning endlessly on that, not getting anything done, just thinking about that, then you'd be insane. <clears throat> but you're getting plenty done because you got a full-time job and you're doing interviews like this. So that's probably fine. 
Now I want to interview you and ask you why you feel lost. I think you're doing just fine. <laughs> For you, I think you were lucky in a sense. You knew exactly what you wanted to do.、Uh, you loved computer, and you you put all your energy and work into learning that skill. But A lot of my friends and me, I feel like we chose our major for the wrong reason because it made us most money, not necessarily because it was something we were passionate about. And I think like a lot of people don't even know what they're passionate about. I definitely tell people to chase things that they love and not chase money. The fact that I've made a few dollars is an absolute miracle. There've been times in my life I've been completely broke and I've had rich people try to buy something I didn't think uh, like I had、uh, a very、uh, A very wealthy、uh, person that owns a bunch of businesses tried to buy my company once when I was really, really starving. Like he's taking change out of the changes to pay for cash, to pay, excuse me, to pay for gas. And、uh, somebody came to me and said, "Someone said wants to buy your business for millions." And I went, "I don't think that's going to be fun." No. So I've really just focused on doing things I love, and then if you do a good job and it's valuable, then money shows up. Did you always have this integrity, or did you always? I think it's like knowing yourself a little bit to say that, hey, like if I don't think my business is gonna thrive under that person, I'm not gonna sell that to them. And I think especially hard not selling when you are like counting pennies and trying to find money to buy gas. But、um, did you always have that? Well, I don't. I, as a kid, I just didn't have a lot of integrity. I just don't. I wasn't really a very good kid. I was really, I don't know, smoking a lot of pot. <laughs> I, was, I was doing a lot of drugs and. I was not a great kid, but I kind of got over that in my early twenties. And then, you know, you survive better if you're ethical. If you don't have to look over your back and you're not doing things that are、uh, criminal, and if you're transparent about things, it just means you can spend more energy looking forward than trying to figure out how to protect your back.、Mm. And so that's panned out for me pretty good. I recommend that to my kids and others.、Uh, yeah. How do you raise your kids? Are do you expect a lot from them, or do you let them be like,、oh, do what you want to do? Well, I don't know if you know, but I have three ex-wives, and <laughs> my second ex-wife, the mother of two of the three,、uh, left us, and so I ended up while being an entrepreneur with my second company that didn't bankrupt. <laughs> I sold that company to IBM. That panned out okay, but that company. I was being an entrepreneur, and I suddenly ended up being a single parent, and so I—it was really interesting to try to come up with a parental strategy. I, I raised my kids probably different than most parents. I—I think it's going to turn out okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I raised them more like friends. Like I wasn't very parental. I wasn't really a great parent, to be honest. But I was—I was supportive and a good friend,、yeah. and. You know the way I would talk to my buddies, adult buddies, while drinking margaritas. The way I would talk to them would be utterly the same that my kids were standing. Like my kids totally know who I am. I, I, in fact, I decided to, you know, kind of inventory the worst things I thought I've ever done in my life, and then I like told my kids what they were. And that way, nothing could ever come out where my kids would go. I didn't know my dad, so I and that, I, my my kids have I think are really. They really have high integrity, high honesty, high transparency, and I think that's、uh, benefiting them all. So、I'm, I don't know. I feel okay about that. But there are other aspects where I'm just a crappy, crappy parent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I told them all to go to college, but I didn't really know what that meant or how to do it. <laughs> and so they had to figure it out all, all out themselves. <laughs> I don't even know how you get to into college. <laughs> I didn't help them at all. <laughs> it's a miracle. Oh man, how old are they? My oldest, which was that one night stand <clears throat> when I was eighteen or nineteen, nineteen,、uh, he's thirty-six now, I think. And then、wow. I have a daughter adopted, who when she was two, and uh, uh, she's uh, uh, twenty, I think, eight now. And my youngest son's twenty. Do they do like triathlon as well, or? They've all done some triathlons, and they've all、uh, done some races with me. I did a three-generation Ironman with my mom and my my youngest,、really? so. I did the bike. My son did the swim, and my mom did the marathon. That was like three or four years ago. That was awesome. Yeah. So like they're my friends. So like when I'm in, if I get into the same town they're in, I mean they cancel everything. Their friends are like, "Your dad's coming to town? No way! Cancel everything." <laughs> and then we hang out. <laughs> it、oh. is. Yeah, it's like it's it's a bit different. Um. 
So you said you just started uh, running or, you know, like uh, extreme sports 10 years ago. What made you start it? I, my, my mom just said, there's a marathon in five weeks. Do you want to do it with me? I'd never run outside. I'd never run in a race. I had five weeks to train, the longest I've ever run. Then I just, I said yes. And then I'm like, oh, what the hell? And then I, 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 my longest run was 11 miles, but only on a treadmill. I'd never run outside. So when I got to 20 miles in the race with my mom, I'm like, mom, can we walk? And she's like, sure, sweetie. And then every mile, she's like, are you ready to run, Jeffrey? I'm like, no. My mom could have carried me over the finish line. I'm like, I could, <laughs> I could have jumped on her back and she would have. <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not even kidding. <clears throat> anyway, that kind of like, I guess part of my journey on these, on these races and stuff is um, it really resets your mind. And one of the parts about the Ironman brand is it just this notion of anything possible is that's just become more and more true. I mean, I remember going, wow, marathon, I'm training in five weeks to do a marathon from nothing. That just, you know, and then you do that. And then before long, you're doing a hundred mile bike ride on something. And then you do a 200 mile bike ride in a day. And you're like, wow, you just, it keeps completely resetting what you think is possible. Like my first Ironman, it seemed impossible. Then I had two Ironmans in two months. That seemed impossible. Then two in two weeks, and then two on the same weekend. That's like, let me tell you, from where I started, that's impossible. But if you, well, I kind of like doing stuff like that. It's a bit extreme, I suppose, but it really resets your thinking. I mean, I'm training for my first marathon as well, and it's so hard. And I walk a lot. Like after two miles, I'll walk for 10 seconds or 20 seconds, then I'll run again. So for you, right, I'm sure there are times where you really want to give up when you said like you're doing two in a weekend, which I think is absolutely insane. Like I can't even imagine it. Uh, what do you tell yourself at that point when you want to give up? You know, you just look a little bit further down the road and you go, but can I make it to that corner? And you're like, yeah, I could, I could make it to that corner. I have to do this in these Ironman races. I don't train very much. Honest, I, I only swim on race day. I don't swim all year long. So my little arms, my little flappers, man, they're mad at five minutes into this hour and a half swim. And because I mainly work, uh, I don't get much training. So it's, it's hard, but I look down the, I just look way down the road and I go, well, I can at least get to the end. And there's this other really famous triathlete, uh, uh, Susan Hag, and uh, she's done over. She's the only female right now to have done over a hundred Ironman races. And she, one of the things she said to me, uh, you should interview her someday. By the way, I could introduce you. Sure, uh, sure. I mean, one of the things that she said uh, somewhere along some races, you know, if you quit, there's no chance a miracle will happen. That's like heavy for me, right? When I think about that, if you just give up, then there's no miracle can happen. What so. what, what are some of the miracles you have experienced? <laughs> I guess when I broke my neck and I was a quadriplegic and no one knew if I was ever going to, well, I shouldn't have even lived, but, um, clearly I probably, many would have thought I could have, would have never walked again. Cause as a full, you know, I broke my neck at C2, right where Christopher Reeves broke his neck. And, uh, you know, if you just give up and go, well, Hey, somebody just, you know, give me a cyanide tablet, <clears throat> no miracle. There would have been that chance for a miracle, but you know, Eight days later, a toe wiggled, and after four months of rehab, and out of a wheelchair and a walker and whatnot. <laughs> that was before you started doing the triathlon, right? Yeah, there was no connection between those. That was just I, that happened when I was twenty-three on on leap day in nineteen eighty-eight. That was a long day. <laughs> so, what did you tell yourself in like doing rehab? Like, did you think you would be able to do all this or did you take it like one step at a time? I, in terms of positive thinking, I just had this, I just thought to myself, I think it was going to be fine. And I, I honest, my first thought was, I mean, I just really like the program. I don't program now. I, I do architecture and design and I'm still, I do technical things, but I, I'm not actually writing the code. But I remember as I was programming then, I, I thought to myself, I will attach a pencil to my nose and I can still program. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that was almost my first thought in the hospital. It's like, hmm, I don't think this would stop me from programming. No, I could still figure out how to program with only wiggling my nose. Sure. I just figured everything was probably going to be okay. I don't, I, I don't really have a great reason for that, but I just, you know, 
turned out okay. But it was a real miracle. It's so interesting to me, and especially when I was researching you, um, like you're in hospital, you can't move your body, and you're still trying to figure out a posit- something positive out of it. And I, I think like I remember reading when you were bankrupt, <laughs> you were bankrupt and you're like, oh, let me start another business because now I know what mistakes not to make. And I was talking to my coworker and I was like, wow, this dude is so awesome. And I feel like everyone should use his technique because 99% of the people would be crushed. You know, I'll tell you a, a late, a late discovery for me. And I wish I would have known this earlier in my journey. But as I look back now, I've had some really big epic failures, like having a, a wife leave you and abandon you with three kids is tough. And Having a being a quadriplegic is tough, and being living in your car and bankrupt and ruining your name at nineteen or twenty is tough. Um, uh, while I was at IBM for a decade, I had one project that didn't go right, and it it was really tough. You know, I cranked out a couple of tears over it. Man, it was just so hard. So I like to be proud of my work, but what I've come to realize is like, I think. Every single tough time I've had, if I just wait a little bit and get down the road some, it turns out it had such a pivotal role in something bigger and better. It's really interesting. I mean, maybe it's not 100%. I suppose if I lost both legs and both arms, I'd be like, well, that might be harder to have it turn out, you know, even better. But today, every bad thing that's happened that's been really tough is just led to a level of growth and rethinking that's mm. been great. Um, I don't know why, but I just I, rem- I would just remember this one thing. I don't even know if that related to that, but when I finally sold my um, SRD company to IBM, I got a, a good check because I was the largest shareholder. But I'd been I'd kept the folder that I went bankrupt on, all the people in it. I'd kept that uh, from my when I was uh, twenty. I kept it in my trunk of the car while I lived in my car. I kept it in every desk drawer right next to me. I saw it, if not every day, every single week. And it had a very distinct folder. The entire it was a manila folder, but one the lip on it was all orange. So it really looked different than anything else. I saw that every single day for almost 20 years. I sold the company to IBM. The first thing I did is I wrote, I tracked down everybody, and I wrote them all checks and paid them back 3% compounded interest. So I was writing checks for $35,000, $25,000. Those are some of the bigger ones. Um, and I just sent people checks, you know, that were double their money, which was 3% compounded interest. And uh, there were 13 people that uh, were I, I couldn't find. Oh, I could find them, but it would be illegal. <laughs> but so I decided not to be do illegal things to try to find people to give them money. So I donated, I donated their money to the, to the MS Society in their name. But anyway, I don't know what just reminded me of that, but... Uh, it created oh, well. It created a really a bunch of goodwill. Like the bankruptcy was really hard, but literally everybody they went bankrupt on that I had failed on to have somebody come back and repay them years later. Some of those people reached out and says, "You have no idea what time this is in my life and the suffering where my family's having." And to get you know twelve thousand dollars from you, it's unbelievable. So it created a bunch of goodwill. So anyway, this bad thing kind of turned good. Wow. Yeah. That just gave me chills, actually. So how long did you keep that manila folder for, like 10 years, 20 years? Oh, yeah, 20 years. Wow. I, so you looked at it every single week for 20 years? Almost every day. I mean, literally, it was. I had it in one of my desk drawers, um, and it wasn't in like a hidden desk drawer that they would rarely open. It was like in the main file, so you'd open it. Uh, it was, I had it in a file box in the back of my car when I lived in my car. It was always next to me. I mean, obviously, when I'm traveling, I didn't travel with it. I didn't staple it to my forehead. <clears throat> but I put it in my regular vision, like places I'd regularly see, if not daily, definitely every single week. <clears throat> uh, and, and I remember when I went bankrupt, uh, I intended, I go, I'm going to pay these people back someday. I didn't know how. I didn't know when. And that, I'll tell you, that, very, that first moment, that, that is what I did. And it was, it created a lot of goodwill. So anyway, bad thing happened. I think, I think my life's fuller today and I think I have better, uh, uh, karma today because of that. 
do you is it you believe in karma or is it like a religion thing you grew up with or I use karma lightly, not in its maybe traditional form. I, I, I think if you are ethical and treat people well, I think that, you know, I feel like a lot of my success has been on the shoulders of others. I, it's not like I got here. It's like so many people have pushed me forward. Well, people won't push you forward if you're a bonehead. I was going to use a different word. I just inserted bonehead. <laughs> but if you're a blank, no one wants to help you. <clears throat> but if you're kind and you... And you and you and you're and you're generous and you help people, then you get people that um, are willing to push you forward, you know, and then you take them forward with you. Uh, I'll tell you know, a funny little story about my journey is I answer every email I get from everybody on Earth. Yeah. If I get a copy broken English email, this has happened from a college student in Brazil and they are asking me about thesis advice, I will write them two or three paragraphs. There was a student down there that did this. And then he wrote me periodically, he hasn't written recently, but he wrote me periodically, maybe two or three times a year. And every single time I continued the conversation with him, I just feel like if people are willing to take the time to communicate with you, you should communicate back. And I got, I mean, I got a couple of funny stories on this just to drive the point home is I got this one email and you would swear it is like absolute purely spam. It's like, I have cancer. Uh, I think you can help me. Um, something, something, neurology, something, something. And I'm like, that is clearly a scam. But something in my head said, I don't know, but what if it's not? And so I email this person and go, I, thanks for writing, but I, you know, I'm like a computer guy and this is like a medical thing. So I don't think I can help you. And this lady, she was from, she was in Germany. It turns out she lives in Germany. That's why her English wasn't so good. It turns out she was looking for a real person named Jeff Jonas who's really a cancer researcher. And had I not answered, she would have thought her call had gone unheard. Wow. And when I answered her, then it allowed her to figure out the right Jeff Jonas to find the right Jeff Jonas. And I remember sitting there thinking, I can't, unbelievable. I keep running into things. I just had a meeting with somebody in Singapore. I was there two weeks ago. And I'm like, it's proper these days because I, I get around a bit. I've had a lot of public speeches, but I often ask people, you know, if we ever met. And the guy goes, no, but I emailed you once from college 10 years ago and you talked to me. And I've been following you ever since. And I, I think to myself, unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I think it's I think being accessible and being willing to communicate with everybody. And I communicate equally, man. If it is a. I'm telling you, Uber drivers sometimes track me down after they put me in the backseat of their car talking to people. They'll email me and I'll talk to them and I'm still their friends and I actually meet them for coffee. I, I, I kid you not. I've had, I've had people doing the most random things, researching slave ancestry and forgotten graves in one county in Virginia, going, will you meet with me? And I think to myself, I'm like Jim Carrey, yes, man. That's a, you want to, that's a religious experience, man. That's That movie to me, Jim Carrey, yes, <laughs> I get calls where people are like, do you want to come to Potsdam, Germany, Potsdam, Germany, uh, and just state equality with 11 people? And I'm like this. I'm like this. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Yeah, this lady's like, I research slave, uh, forgotten African-Americans. Uh, will you meet with me? And I'm like, I'm like, yes. And what did you I, talk about? Well, they met me the first time I go, I go, listen, where do you live? And it's like wherever. And I go, I'm going to be in this airport on this day in three months. I will show up there two hours early and at two hours before I need to, to meet with you. She drives two hours to meet with me and she shows me spreadsheets that she'd been working on uh, uh, to, to find uh, 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 ancestries and genealogies of forgotten African-Americans. And I sat there and told her, you know, how I would, uh, improve the results that she's getting you know and then she calls me back or emails me like a month later and goes that was really helpful it worked and then wow. i said i went wow i go, you want some more time i'll give you an entire day and then i gave her a, an entire friday and i met with her in a lobby of a hotel i spent the entire friday working with her on helping her in her work and in again in almost all of these cases i get so much out of that it makes me so much smarter and such a broader understanding of what's happening in the world it's i just love that i'm like a yes man <laughs> my grandma used to always say like a tree which has a lot of fruits is always bended down so if you 
have so much to give, why not be humble and like give to the world? That's cool. You said the tree with a lot of fruit, it, because of the weight of the fruit, the tree yeah. bends down. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about Nora. And I also heard a story how a grandmother was able to get her grandchild out of Mexico because of your software. Oh, the, that, the grandmother story is slightly different. But I, I like the sound of where you're going. I'm not sure I've saved, I've saved anybody out of, out of Mexico. But, uh, so, but okay, so we'll break that up into two parts. First, there's, um, you know, there's first there's Nora. When uh, when I moved my company to Vegas, because I had some projects with the casinos. We were doing projects elsewhere in the country, but I had a bit of work at the casinos, and I kind of had this curiosity and love for Vegas. I spent the last half of my life living there, and um, really love Vegas and have many great friends there. But um. One of the casinos wanted to, wanted to do a better job making sure who they knew they were, who they were doing business with. They can get in real trouble if they're doing business with you know, like Joe Bagadona's mafia person number seven. <laughs> that gets them in real trouble. So they got to make sure Joe Bagadona's is not uh, whatever in their hotel gambling. So we built a software for them, and it worked well. And it started finding data that it was started finding things that were not obvious. Where they'd go, that's fascinating. So it kind of earned the name Nora, which stands for non-obvious relationship awareness. So that technology, um, well, then it caught the eye of the venture capital arm of the CIA. It's called InQtel. So they showed up and said, you want to take some money from us? And that's very weird for me because I'm like from Vegas. I don't know anything about the East Coast and government and especially intelligence. And I'm like, why? And they said, you know, we think your software could help find criminals in the government. I'm like, well, that's fascinating. Huh. And so Nora grows up and then this is why IBM buys my company in January of 2005. And, um, and then IBM today has a product. It's called Identity Insight. It's my oldest daughter in, ter in terms of software. <laughs> She's really gone a long ways, my oldest daughter, Nora. <clears throat> um, and, um, and so IBM sells this invention of mine to this day to different kinds of companies. But one of the companies they uh, sold uh, the Nora technology to, although, again, it's called Identity Insight, but um, is MoneyGram. And so um, the day MoneyGram turned it on, it was reported that their fraud complaints dropped 72 percent. Wow. So you're like, Wow. And then about maybe three years after they'd used the software, they publicly said it had saved them 200 million. So I'm like, these are the kind of things that make my team and I like, woo <laughs> <laughs> so exciting. Makes me want to get to work. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and then, but one of the stories that came out of that, which was really touching, is that, so this grandma goes to MoneyGram, fills out all the information to send $2,500 to her grandson. But it goes through this software that I, I uh, uh, my, I, my team and I invented. And it tell, before it transfers the money, uh, the software tells MoneyGram, like, hey, man, that's not a good idea. That's probably a scam. So they, they, they stop the money. They don't send it to the grandson. They call or email or whatever they do. I don't know the particular details, but I know the story is true because they've published it. But uh, but it goes like this. They um they reach out to the grandma and they go, no, yeah, um, are you sure? We're pretty sure that's a scam. And the grandma goes, oh no no no, that is definitely my grandson. Send the money. And MoneyGram is like looking at the information that Nora has put together, and MoneyGram's like, mm, um, mm, uh, mm, no. And the grandma's like, this is my time of need. <laughs> this is my grandson. Send the money. When somebody's that sure, if MoneyGram would have sent the money, it's gone forever. Yeah. It's not MoneyGram's fault. But MoneyGram's sitting there, despite the fact she's like banging the table. MoneyGram's like this going, um, mm -hmm. no, we don't think so. Well, like two or three days later, she calls MoneyGram back in tears thanking them because she finds out it was totally a scam. So have my software be part of something like that. That's the kind of thing that makes my uh, team and I like really excited. Oh, I heard you cried after that. 
I, I get accused. I, I do choke <laughs> up a bit uh, at certain Academy Award speeches <laughs> and <laughs> movies that have where uh, people uh, accomplish something surprising given their condition. I, it chokes me up. I'm probably that's one thing most of my friends don't know about me is I, you know, <laughs> but it does choke me up. <laughs> How's your schedule look like day to day? I'm like really fascinated. Do you have a morning routine or do you meditate or what do you do? Um, like from morning to night? It's pretty random. I, I work and then I, and I, and I, exercise and I have this amazing girlfriend and I blur all of these things together uh, best I can. If I can do all three at the same time, I do. <laughs> we, we were in Mexico earlier this year for a week, a week, uh, one week in Zihuatanejo on vacation. I was sitting on the beach next to her working on my laptop, looking at her smiling. I only worked 40 hours that week. Only 40 hours. Yeah, I only work forty. Like that is that is nothing. Like that is nothing. What's the actual time you work? Like normal work? I lot more than that. That's you know, I exercise, I work, and I, I hang out with girlfriend. We have fun, and this is what I do: just rinse and repeat. <laughs> I put a stationary bicycle in her kitchen in Santa Monica. And then I set my laptop on the handlebars so I can work while I'm pedaling. And then we would be talking while she's in the kitchen and passing back and forth an iPad playing a Scrabble game. So I am having quality time with girlfriend. I'm answering emails and I'm spinning out some cardio. <laughs> ah, oh, that's living. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, for most people, they're 40 hours. It's like, oh, my God, I work 40 hours. But it's just it's not work. But what I do is not work. It's just fun. It's. I get something back from it. I put five units of energy in it. I get back 10 uh, units of pleasure. It's, I wish that for everybody. I, it's hard. I've not found it that, you know, I told all my kids, Hey, find the thing you love most, you know, and I tried to show them the widest range of things, but even though well, they got a taste, you know, how about computers? They're like, ah, not our love. How about, how about this? How about bowling? <laughs> how about music? How about, and so they're all, they're all doing things that they enjoy, but I don't think they are have found something that they would just call their hobby, that mm -hmm. they would do it for fun. And, I, and maybe while I thought that's easy, you know, why couldn't everybody, why wouldn't that happen for everybody? I don't know if it's impossible or um, that there just people need to see more examples of things. I think curiosity leads to, is a form of create, can lead to a form of creativity. And so asking like why and trying to imagine how you could see through a piece of data to find other, to reveal other informations, to make a better prediction about what's going to happen tomorrow. And maybe there's just not enough data here to make that. And if I could have any more data, what would be the one piece of data that I could have that I could put into this other data and make this data sing? Uh, yeah, your job can be pretty fun. I love data. Computers most is like, oh, data? Oh. <laughs> I watched a video how you bought all these Scrabbles, like three different Scrabbles, and you put it together and gave it to your kids to like. Yeah, I bought jigsaw puzzles, and then I hid pieces, then I mixed pieces, and I got duplicates, and I made a pile, and I was doing an experiment with them. <laughs> uh, we have a, uh, a government agency called Child Protective Services. They make sure you don't do things that are evil to children or experimental. Um, so the second project I did with puzzles, I took other kids out on my boat to sea. <laughs> so there was no child protective services, no food or water for five hours while I timed them with a stopwatch and then I fell straight. <laughs> and I like I watched a video and for you it was all data. You were trying to figure out like one hour they're gonna figure out, two hours they like found this thing, and in four hours I think it was five hours, they're like, You are evil. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, definitely two or three hours in. The oldest boy just looks at me when he realized there were duplicates and missing pieces and it was more than one puzzle because <laughs> I didn't show him any covers of the boxes. <clears throat> it was just, it was just, it was just an experiment. I was curious what was going to happen. What was I going to learn? I learned more things than I could possibly imagine by this little project, by the way. And anyway, the oldest boy just looks at me and goes, you're evil. And I thought to myself, this is a great day. This is amazing. <laughs> 
you're fascinated with the brain too. Like, how did you start with fascination with brain, and like, why is hippocampus so important? Oh, you're diving in so deep. Um, you know, there's a lot to learn from biology. So sometimes when I see something in my algorithms, I ask myself, yeah, but how does how did biology solve that? Like, if it's not working in a computer. Maybe I should be inspired by biology. So I've learned to like look to the field of biology and meet with biologists to uh, maybe expand my line of thinking. And what I found out about five years ago is that my my body of work about understanding how data relates and, and recognizing patterns is a function of the hippocampus. And so I become very excited about the hippocampus. And so now I hang out with hippocampus researchers whenever I can. And I ask them a lot of questions, but because I don't have any education, I tell them to use small words and try to draw pictures. <laughs> so what is hippocampus and, you know, like how does that help you with data? I'm going to give an example of the hippocampus real quick. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. I have a question for you. I want you to think about this. How much data do you have in your head? Now, as you think about that, you're going to realize it's hard to get your head around that because <laughs> it's so like... When you're this part of your head looking over here, it just feels endless. When you're on this part of your head and you look over there, it feels endless. If I asked you about how much information do you have in your head about your mother, you'd be like, oh, oh, I can, you can feel that. It might be a lot, but people can feel it. But then if I said Genghis Khan, you'd be like, oh, mm -hmm. I can feel it in my head and I could count it. I mean, unless you studied him, uh, Genghis Khan, and you knew a million facts, but most people like, you know, uh, Mongol Empire. Mongolia, uh, yeah. Yeah, Mongolia, uh, this, that, long time ago. <laughs> I don't know. People maybe know less than 10 things about Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you know what Genghis Khan looks like? Mm -hmm. You do? Yeah. Okay, most people don't. But I didn't. So I went to Wikipedia, and I pulled him up, and there's this, there's this picture uh, in Wikipedia. Now, when I saw this picture of Genghis Khan... It did not go into my head and land in a random place. It didn't go into my head and land in like my folder about mom. It added to what I know about Genghis Khan. The hippocampus did that. The hippocampus is like a card catalog at a library. It gives you a pointer to where the stuff goes. Wow. If I showed you the symbol of Prince, you know that symbol of mm -hmm. the artist form known as? Mm -hmm. That would open up a pathway in your head to the artist Prince, and it might remind you of how Prince looks, or the song Purple Rain, or his fancy guitars. But the hippocampus uh, takes—it uh, does a lot of things. But the thing part that I'm most interested in is it takes the the entity like Prince or your car. If I told you your car's low on gas, it opens up a pathway to that thing, and it allows new facts about it to add to it. Oh wow! And in the work I do, which is in its most like a technical term that a, a programmers would use, it's called entity resolution. It's determining whether the, it's the same thing or not. Is that the same bill? Is Bill Smith the same as William Smith? With the symbol of Prince and then the artist formerly named as Prince, whatever his real birth name was, those are all the same entities. That's called entity resolution. So my companies that haven't figured out who is the same as who... They do a horrible job recognizing customers and risk and opportunity. You can't even think if you can't count. If you think it's five customers with five transactions, but it's one customer with five transactions, like how could you even have a model, a financial model? But the hippocampus does that. So the hippocampus is the thing that does entity resolution for human cognition. So interesting how you think it's not about like a small project that you're working on for you. It's like overall and like, how can science help me with the data? How can like me playing with my children help me with my data? And like at the end of the day, you love collecting data, like understanding data so much that you just combine everything. It does all kind of really relate back to the same thing, because my love com about computers is really my love for um, uh, taking data and connecting it. And I think entrepreneurship is about solving world's biggest problems. Like, what do you think should be... Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, wait, time out. I, I, 
the part about defining entrepreneurship as solving the world's greatest problems. Let me tell you, there are some entrepreneurs that are only trying to figure out how to find my cell phone number and have a computer talk to me and ask me if I want to join some kind of a stupid thing. That is not solving the world's problems. Those people are evil. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't necessarily consider them like, on, I don't know, like a real entrepreneurs. <laughs> They're businesses, right? Yeah, I was just, I'm just playing on the fact that I think entrepreneurs come in all scales. There's probably some mastermind criminal out there uh, that is very entrepreneurial, but they're not saving the world. They're trying to figure out how to steal a thousand bitcoins. So <laughs> I think entrepreneurial is um, hacking new ground to do something uh, that's going to make you, uh, you know, I don't know, have an outcome that you want, whether it's make money. But I think if you had to do, if you wanted to be a useful person on earth, and help, then mm -hmm. you're going to do entrepreneurial on one, on the end of the spectrum that is like creating a big impact. Yeah. And you were talking about. Yeah, I was. I wanted to take that because um, you said like you only went to college for a semester and you didn't go through like traditional schooling, and yet you're so successful. If most of the things that you know is self-taught or learned from someone who knew what they were talking about, and you know, like kind of replicated whatever they knew. But <clears throat> like in today's day and age, we have computers everywhere, internet everywhere. I did Everest Base Camp last year and they even have Wi-Fi there. And, but the thing is like, there are people who live in $2. You did Base Camp last year? Yeah. <laughs> uh, have you done you, it? No, I'm just impressed. You, I mean, you did Trialathon. It's like a joke for you. You'll be like, that's it? No, not, that is no joke. No, 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 no. That's just cool. You know, you're seeing the world, and you're, that's interesting. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you go and like hang out with a monk and like learn that he was a monk when he was seven years old, and you just like to understand like why did you decide to be a monk, you know? Or do you interview him? At this time, when I go, I'm trying to interview twenty movers and shakers from India, Nepal, possibly Bangladesh, and like share their story because I don't think a lot of people know about people there who have done like great stuff like you. Yeah, I, I think what you're doing is, is amazing. So you. Thank you. So going back to my question. Uh, yes. So someone good. who's making like two, three dollar a day, right? And they want to contribute to this world and they do have access to internet or phone or smartphone. How can they go about learning and becoming like the next Jeff Jonas? You know what? Those are such different circumstances. It's hard for me to imagine what that pathway would be. But I guess the one thing I would say is by diving in and getting your your hands dirty in an area that you're passionate in might be true in all domains. Like, how could it be that somebody that didn't go to school about computers but wanted to be a computer programmer could just get going. I just had to dive in and and do it. So I think it's about it's about picking something that you can that you can be passionate about and then doing it. Just do it, Nike. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, where's my? I don't have a pair of Nike shoes around. <laughs> um, what is one advice would you give to your twenty year old self? Or a few advice. I would go back to like it. Uh, don't freak out about the really big epic failures because it's going to turn out they are going to become secret. Uh, they're going to become pivot points to bigger things and possibly even the basis of like big breakthroughs. Mm. Well, you wouldn't change a thing, right? No. I well, I don't know. Who can say that? I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's changed something. Maybe I just have two ex-wives, not three. I don't know. I'm a good ex-husband, but, you know, geez. <laughs> <clears throat> but, you know, it's a it's a journey, and it's like shit goes wrong, and then other things go right, and if you foul something up, just be as responsible as you can, and then don't get stuck on it, and do better next time, and create more goodwill than ill will, and use high-quality stuff. Mm. I don't know. Things, things, things seem to turn out okay. Yeah, it's amazing. Any books you would recommend? I don't read. <laughs> really? 
No, I really, I really stay away from reading. <laughs> Why? I've read it. It's a little, it's a little embarrassing. I have a stack of books that I'd like to read. Okay. But I just don't have time. And I'm a very, very slow reader. Like there's these big words that people use and I got to go look them up in dictionaries and it's slow. So it's hard for me to read. It's very hard to read. Wow. But I, I've read like 10 books in my adult life. Okay. Favorite? I liked, I liked Art of War. I read that one twice. So two of the 10 was Art of War. Okay. <laughs> and, um, the most recent book I've read, maybe the only book I've read in five years is um, Sun's, uh, excuse me, is um, Lee Kuan Yew's book called One Man's View of the World. Huh. I'm an incredible fan of Singapore and Lee Kuan Yew and what he's done with his country. I, I visit that country more than any other country. And I'm, I'm blown away by, by, him, by Lee Kuan Yew and his, his view of the world. And I... Um, yeah, I read that book. It was a great book. Okay. It's really inspired me on my, in all kinds of ways. Anyway. I'll definitely put that on my show notes. Um, where can people find you? Usually on a middle seat on some international flight, sitting up without, without watching any TV or listening to any music and working the entire way. <laughs> That's wow. uh, I'm at Jeff Jonas on Twitter. Okay. And I'm on um, TypePad at Jeff, uh, Jeff Jonas on TypePad. I I blog once every two years, and I tweet a lot more, like twice a year. <laughs> That's going to pick up because my company's going to come out of stealth mode in Q1. Uh, so I'm going to start turning up more on these channels. But at the moment, I'm secretly baking my master plan with my team. <laughs> That's awesome. Last question. <laughs> Last question. What's your definition of courage? My definition of courage, maybe doing something that's hard or challenging and that may possibly uncomfortable, uh, but it's a calculated risk taking in into account greatest good. It's mm, awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, it's really awesome. I It's nice talking to you. Hey, you guys, thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you feel like this episode has added value in your life in any way, shape, or form, please go to iTunes, subscribe to this podcast, leave a comment, because it will give me an opportunity to reach out to more incredible people like Jeff. And if you have any questions or suggestions, go to limitlessgrid.com at gmail.com and shoot me an email and also go to limitlessgrid.com for show notes and I'll talk to you guys next week.